Hello, welcome to my podcast. The Mongols, Chinese emperors. This is episode one, Nomads to Conquerors. With this episode, I begin the long, impressive, and violent journey of the Mongols towards becoming Chinese emperors. Their journey has to start somewhere and at some time. This episode will lay the groundwork to that journey. Before the Mongols were widely known, they inhabited a relatively small area we call Mongolia, about the geographic size of Western Europe. Perhaps there were no more than one million people residing there. It was a landlocked region in Eastern Asia, primarily surrounded by Russia and China. But at our pertinent time, say the year 1200, the Mongol region's western border would be Muslim kingdoms and principalities. The region was inhabited by nomadic people fond of and good at animal herding. Far back into recorded history, the Mongols were just one of the many nomadic tribes on the steppes of this Asian region. It is not very clear if the various Mongolian tribes that inhabited that region were related. It's been alleged they were. Their primary, sole occupation was herding domesticated animals. Horses were the most prized, obviously used for herd control, but also used for transport and as military mounts. It is also clear that horses outnumbered humans many times. Of the remaining domesticated animals, sheep were most common. They were used for wool and meat. Then came goats, again, for wool and meat. Then cattle, for their leather, meat, and transport. Finally, camels were used for transport. All the domesticated animals were used for their milk, for yogurt, and for dung, for fuel. The records don't agree, but Temuchin, or Temujin, was born into one of the Mongol tribes living in this steppe region of Eastern Asia sometime around the year 1165. He spent the earlier years of his life uniting and consolidating the various tribes in the steppes, all culminating in the year 1206. 
Celebrating his efforts, uniting the region, he proclaimed himself the universal ruler, or Genghis Khan. According to some histories, Genghis means blue wolf, a mythical, strong, and fearless creature. The great Khan looked at him as like an emperor. He renamed his united kingdom the Great Mongol Nation and made it clear, made it a clear intention to bring the entire known world then under Mongol control. Like any emperor, he organized his nation, established civil and military codes. Genghis abolished all hereditary titles and entitlements. All rank and privilege in the Mongolian kingdom would be based on merit and accomplishments. Genghis, knowing very little about statecraft, recruited outside people, principally Chinese, to administer the state. At this early juncture of the podcast, the key point to know is that Genghis's attention quickly turned to his neighbor, China. He valued their wealth and wanted that for himself and his people. Now, I don't mind at this point giving away some of the story. And I think this is an important point to know as I go forward. Keep it in the back of your head. The conquest of China by the Mongols, started by Genghis Khan, would finish 70 years later with his grandson, Kublai, or Kublai Khan. It is also important to keep in mind that against the backdrop to the Mongols' conquest of China, they were empire-building and had operations against the Middle East, Russia, Afghanistan, Eastern Europe, Korea, and Japan, which, in my opinion, makes the accomplishments of these nomadic warriors even more impressive. I'll touch on some of these later in this series. The Mongols, in their pursuit of empire, fought on grasslands, frozen tundra, subtropic jungles, mountains, deserts, swamps, and on the seas and on rivers. Think a moment about the political and cultural differences they encountered in the areas they sought conquest. Feudalism imperialism, monarchies, and nomadism. But this podcast is not about the full history of the Mongol story. My presentation is limited, as I have stated. But I could easily get carried away with the exploits of the Mongols. I, however, must mention these other events that I just did, to put my presentation in context and perspective. The Chinese were the Mongols' biggest trading partner. Genghis Khan and the Mongols saw China as the richest and best territory to have. Available records show there was constant border skirmishes for a long time between the two nations. 
the, camp, the campaign the Mongols launched to eventually become the Yuan dynasty in China was the largest and longest military campaign involved in creating the Mongol Empire. As I already stated, a 70-year campaign. That's commitment. Before I dive into the story any further, I must discuss the geopolitics of China at that time. I know, it's a bit complicated, but I got this. I'll boil it down for all of you. China, in the year of 1200, in the year of 1200, was composed of principally three empires. Actually, there were many more than that, but there were three principal ones related particularly to this podcast. China, at that time, was not unified as we think of it in a modern context. The three empires were the Song Dynasty, the Jin Dynasty, and the Shi Xia Dynasty. Let me start with the Song Dynasty. It began in the year 960, and it did consist of a unified China until around the year 1115. In 1115, the Jin, more on them next, defeated the Song. That split the Song Empire in half, north and south. The northern half was above the Yangtze River. The southern half was below the Yangtze River. The Song retained the southern half, and it was renamed the Southern Song. The Jin had the northern half, after 1115. So the Song ruled China from the year 960 to or about 1271 or 1279, depending on your source. The Northern Northern Song lasted from 960 to 1115. Got that so far? Now let's talk about the Jin. It is referred to by many names. It's called the former Jurchenshin, or the Liao Dynasty, or the Qin Dynasty. The Qin were Manchus that also ruled the Qing Dynasty from the year 1644 to the year 1912. By the way, There was another Jin dynasty in China that ruled for roughly 160 years beginning in the 3rd century. So no confusion with them. During the Song dynasty, Kaifeng was used as the capital of China. That changed after the Jin invasion, and the southern Song moved the capital to Hangzhou in Zhejiang province near Shanghai. The Jin made Chengdu as its capital. Chengdu is now Beijing. One little detail remains. Remember, I said there were three dynasties comprising China. Actually, 
there were numerous kingdoms at that time that comprised what we would consider modern-day China, not just three. I've used the three major ones. The third empire, the third dynasty I referred to was Shi Xia, the soon-to-be next subject of this history. Shi Xia is also referred to as Western Xia, or the Tangut Empire. Shi Xia is now part of northwest China, comprising parts of Xinjiang, Gansu, Shanxi, Shanxi, and Qinghai provinces. A portion of the Silk Road went through the Tangut Empire. Its capital was Xingqing, now called Yinchuan. The peoples inhabiting that area were a cross of Chinese and Tibetan and Muslim. They had their own language, but copied China in nearly everything else, including their culture. The Tanguts will play a key role in what comes next. Genghis Khan was attracted to the Tangut Empire for two primary reasons. First, Genghis wanted to expand and conquer Jin China. Doing so without disposing of or dealing with the Tangut Empire would have left his right military flank exposed. So he needed to neutralize the Tangut threat on his right. Second, the Shishia, or Tangut, were known to have vast riches because of the Silk Road of silver, silk, jade, porcelain, and lacquerware. And it was apparent to the Shishia that something was afoot with their northern neighbor, Mongolia. The Shia requested help from the Jin, but none came. Once the Mongols launched their campaign against the Tangut Empire, it did not take long. And by the year 1209, Genghis had seized the Tangut capital. During their attack on the capital, Xingqing, the Mongols demonstrated their classic military strategy that made them famous or infamous. Xingqing was well fortified and defended. To counter that, Genghis ordered a portion of his military forces to feign weakness and low numbers in front of the Tanguts. The Mongols then made a hasty retreat, hoping the enemy would come out of their fortifications and pursue pursue them. They did, and were lured to a place where the Mongols had superior numbers and position, and they ambushed the Shishia. By the year 1210, the Tanguts had capitulated and agreed to submit to Mongol control. Genghis Khan's first foreign invasion was a success. Soon thereafter, Genghis Khan accepted the fealty of the Uyghurs and the Karluks, the latter a Turkic nation in Central Asia. After the subjugation of the Tangut Empire, 
Genghis Khan received a diplomatic visit from the Jin Empire in the year roughly 1210. They came to announce the, asc- the ascension of the Jin Emperor Wanyun Yongji, or Xingshen, in the year 1208. The Jin dynasty long considered, and it was indeed a tradition, that the Mongols were a vassal state to the Jin Empire. So the tribute mission was not unusual, but Genghis Khan refused to show respect for the envoy and refused to kowtow before them. Instead, it is said, Genghis Khan turned his back on them and either spit at them or on the ground. That, of course, was gross disrespect to the Chinese emperor. The Jin envoys left, and Genghis Khan immediately assembled a public meeting to discuss whether the Mongols should invade Jin, China. One of the arguments Genghis Khan used at the meeting was that the Jin emperor was blocking goods from Song, China, and Genghis Khan intended to invade them when he first took out the Tangut Empire. Genghis Khan started his Jin campaign in the year 1211. He had roughly 120,000 men plus about 50,000 horses. His military forces moved along two fronts. Genghis Khan had one of the fronts. The initial intent of Genghis was not subjugation and conquer, but to depose the emperor. And the Mongols quickly punched through the Jin's defenses from the east and the west. Once inside China, the Mongols would rage war on everything. Scorched earth hardly seems applicable to describe the kind of terror and devastation they brought. I'll talk more about their military tactics in the next episode. In this initial push into China in the year 1211, Genghis Khan made it all the way to their capital, Chengdu, which is Beijing now. The initial assault may, however, only been to intimidate a reconnaissance mission and for war treasure. As soon as the winter neared that year, the Mongols fled north, abandoning their gains. But they returned again in the year 1212 and again withdrew as winter approached. Then in the spring of 1213, they returned again. But this time, before going back north, they did not abandon their positions and maintained a blockade of Chengdu. By the end of 1213, it was clear the Mongols had wreaked enormous devastation in China. The Mongols' intimidation by fear and terror had begun to steadily win them converts from the Jin. It is estimated by the end of 1214, there were 46 Jin military divisions fighting for the Mongols. By the time most of the Jin dynasty was under the control, by that time, rather, most of the Jin dynasty was under the control of the Mongols. In the summer of 1215, Chengdu fell, whether by force or a peace deal, it is not clear.
The Jin Emperor apparently fled, and the Jin established their new capital at Kaifeng in Hunan province, some 700 miles south of Zhongdu. Remember, Kaifeng had been the capital under the Song dynasty before being pushed out by the Jin. The fall of Zhongdu is considered by many to begin to be the beginning of Mongol domination of China. Contemporary travelers to Zhongdu saw the devastation left by the Mongols. They described mountains and mountains of bones could be seen all around Zhongdu. The ground was described as greasy from human fat. And by the year 1215, the Jin Empire verged on collapse. Events, however, were unfolding far from China and Turkestan. Those events caused Genghis Khan to delay his China offensive. He would then send the bulk of the Mongol resources to the west for the next several years. During the interregnum, however, Jin China still remained a theater of war and the casualties continued to climb. The Mongols would be back to China for sure. In 1219, Genghis Khan invited the Khwarazm Empire over an alleged attack and murder in the empire of several members of a Mongol trade envoy. The Muslim Khwarazm Empire spanned Central Asia and stretched from Afghanistan, Iran, and the Caspian Sea. Much of the Silk Road ran through the empire. The Mongols finally captured Samarkand in the year 1220 and other key cities by 1221. While the Mongolian military forces in the early 1220s were toiling in Central and Western Asia, the reconnaissance missions into Georgia and Eastern Europe would eventually bring much larger Mongol military forces several years later. In their exploits in Georgia and Eastern Europe, the Mongols would receive their moniker, Horsemen of the Devil. One of the requirements of people subjugated by the Mongols was to provide auxiliary troops and support. When Genghis Khan left the Jin in China for his Khwarezm campaign, he requested the Shishia help with auxiliaries. They, however, did not provide it. Genghis Khan, and for that matter the Mongols, could not tolerate the refusal. Genghis interpreted the refusal as a threat to his military. So after the invasion of Khwarezm, the Khwarezm Empire, Genghis had to go back to Shishia in the year 1223 and penalize them for their refusal. The Shishia, or the Taguts, were given a chance to redeem and account for themselves, but that was all destroyed when the Tanguts signed a peace treaty with the Jin dynasty in 1225. War now was inevitable between the Mongol Empire and the Tanguts. Unlike the first Mongol invasion in the year 1209, the attack on the Shishia the second time was more surgical. The strategy was to quickly isolate their capital, and by early 1227, their capital, Xing 
Qing was under siege and on the verge of collapse. The capital finally fell in the fall of 1227, and the Tanguts once and forever were defeated. The Tangut victory, however, was diminished by the loss of Genghis Khan. He succumbed from complications from a writing accident in the late summer of 1227. In the next episode, I'll talk about the immediate aftermath of Genghis's death. I'll talk in some detail about the typical Mongol warrior and also some of the Mongolian campaign and military tactics. I also want to talk separately about their greatest military commander, Subutai Badur. The final defeat of the Chinese Jin Dynasty, I'll mention, and the great succession crisis that permanently damaged the Mongolian Empire. Finally, I'll talk about the other Khans from that era, Ogadai Khan, Guyuk Khan, Monkey Khan, and Kublai Khan. So thank you. It has been my pleasure.